Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative. Piecemeal covers topics related to eating disorders, body image, and how society may influence our thinking. Please use your discretion when listening and speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lampert. Today, we're discussing compulsive exercise with a guest who can speak to it both personally and professionally, Amy Gardner. Amy is the creator of the iMove program based on her book, iMove, Helping Your Clients Heal from Compulsive Exercise. She is a certified eating disorder registered dietitian through IADAP, the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals, and a 200-hour registered yoga teacher. Amy is also the founder of Metro West Nutrition, a group nutrition and psychotherapy counseling practice with locations in the Metro West Boston areas, a practice she has owned and operated for over 10 years. Thank you so much for being with us today, Amy. We're so excited to discuss this topic. Thank you for having me. I love talking about this, so I'm really eager for our conversation to start. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, let's dive, let's dive right in. So we we so appreciate you joining to explore the conversation about compulsive exercise movement because it's really a topic that's not often discussed enough. I think in recovery spaces, we talk about our healing our relationship with food, which is important. And we also know that re- redefining our relationship with movement, with our bodies, with exercise activity can be a key goal of recovery. So both the eating and the movement piece are part of really making peace uh, with ourselves with our bodies. But let's start our conversation with your own experience with exercise. Can you tell us about this history and the extent to which physical activity was addressed or, or not during your eating disorder in recovery? Yes, absolutely. So I was an athlete growing up. I you know from a very young age, uh, had a lot of natural athletic ability. So that was a part of a big part of my identity growing up. Through my adolescence, I did de- develop an eating disorder. And a big part of that continued to be movement exercise. And in my mind, it was really athletic training, right? I really kind of um, could compartmentalize it or kind of I guess, excuse it as part of this athletic identity. And it was in, in, but the problem was that I was exercising when I wasn't nourishing myself, when I wasn't well hydrated, um, I was moving past my body's limits. I was exercising past pain and, and even injury at times and using exercise as a way to actually move out of my body, the experiences I was having in my body that were really uncomfortable. And it's interesting because, you know, I started treatment, treatment relatively young. I went to therapy at, you know, once my mom figured out what was going on and throughout um, the course of my treatment, my work, we really exercise never came up. Um, It never was addressed. I never brought it in because it never registered as something that was problematic. You know, exercise is good for you. This is something I was doing that was healthy for my body, even if it didn't feel good. Um, And so I, uh, it really didn't even dawn on me until until I started having a much different relationship with movement, you know, in my early twenties, when I started to incorporate yoga and meditation, and I started to realize, wait a minute, what I've been doing with my body is not is not coming from a place of, of, of love and health. It's really stems into my eating disorder. So, and I think that that's true and tr- from, for a lot of people. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that now I think many more clinicians are identifying exercise and you know compulsive exercise as a, a, a part of the disorder. Absolutely, I think, I think that's true. And for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the term, how would you define compulsive exercise? 
Yeah, so I think a good way to define it is to really compare it to what, um, I hate the word healthy, but for lack of a better word, what healthy exercise might look like or healthy movement. So when we think about, you know, normative or healthy movement, um, you know, what it does for us is it increases energy, it enhances mood, it it's passion driven. So we think about, if you think about athletes that do spend a lot of time moving and exercising, but, it, but it's with respect for the body's limits and with respect for um, the natural evolution of fitness over a period of time, right? Respecting that time it takes to build up endurance and tolerance for movement and exercise. And it's a source of enjoyment. Whereas compulsive exercise alternately is more um, a source of obligation and people will basically operate their lives around movement and exercise versus the other way around, which is like, you know, exercise is scheduled around life events and activities. It, you know, compulsive exercise ignores body's cues and pushes past limitations. People will push past pain and even physical injury. I've had clients that will push it off having necessary surgeries because they don't want to have to take the time off of movement. Uh, it's more punishment driven uh, and it, it tends to lower mood, decreases energy. So people have less energy because it's exhausting their body. So they have less energy for other things in their life. So it has this like kind of more um, detrimental effect on their overall being and sense of self and their quality of life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, despite the perhaps focus on achieving health and doing the right thing, actually not very helpful. And we know that I think for many people, compulsive exercise and movement can be a, a common feature of an eating disorder, yet there's not a lot of resource out there that's particularly designed to help people develop a, a, a healthier or a more in-tuned or more intuitive relationship with movement. So we, of course, love that you have created one in, in iMove. So tell us about iMove, the, the thought behind it, uh, the book, and groups, and the other pieces that go along with what you've designed. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting, you know, one of the things I've noticed as I talk to clinicians about the program and, you know, even it, like, looking back in my own, my own work, you know, with eating disorders is there's this gap where a lot of people are talking about the relationship with exercise and exploring it with clients and maybe, maybe doing some behavioral work around it where they're doing goal setting and setting limits. Maybe there's even a movement plan in place, but there's this gap where it's like, okay, so we've, we've contained it, right. You know, in the, the patients or clients potentially were limiting their movement to 30 minutes a day or just walking or just yoga. But there's this, where there's a, there was a gap is this, or is a gap. And I'm hoping that this is what iMove fills is in how do we shift that quality of the relationship? Kind of similar to how we look at shifting people into an intuitive relationship with, with, with food. How do we do that with movement? And in my own personal experience in recovery and in the work I've done with clients, it's really about bringing some of these new experiences in and, and helping them have different experiences in their body, that embodiment work. So iMove really brings in a combination of, of, of education. So there's some psychoeducation around the purpose of the exercise, what it's doing, the neurobiology of it, and then also alternate ways to provide the body with certain kinds of input that will help activate that relaxation response, will help accomplish those same things without needing to exhaust the body. So a lot of people that struggle with compulsive exercise have trauma histories. You know, it's the case for me. And there's this desire to run away, right? This desire to get out of the body's experience. So 
what the iMove approach does is it brings in a lot of the things we all as therapists and dietitians and people working in this field know, like mindfulness and sensory-based work and breathing and some polyvagal theory, all these things combined to really and also the community aspect, right? Here we are in a group with a group of people that are all struggling with this and all get it. And that's a big piece of the program. So it's this education, community, experiential, and then a lot of self-exploration. So there's a lot of journaling and a lot of a chance for uh, self-inquiry through first getting into the body. And then what I've noticed is because it's more of a bottom-up approach, right? Getting into the body and there's a lot more of like a deeper awareness that comes from that. With the participants absolutely that makes a lot of sense they get get into their body and then what do they do with it is a really important concept right right you know? right and in, in your experience you know there's a lot of i think there's a lot of challenges of treating compulsive exercise and so in your experience what are some of the challenges that you've run into when you're trying to address compulsive exercise with somebody so a lot of it is, you know, it, there's such a, a combination of fear of going into the body, um, a, a real challenge in slowing down. Slowing down is really uncomfortable and it comes up a lot. And so even just last, last night in IMOVE group, we did a very, you know, actually one of the great things about this pilot group, they've continued on for several more sessions. So it's really morphed into something that's this evolving curriculum and they, they will identify something that was really helpful or valuable and I'll add on to that. So late last night, we actually did some Kundalini yoga where it was like a mantra. And one of the people acknowledged that during that, she's like, I wanted to go get up and leave and go to the gym. <laughs> and we, but it was beautiful because it's like, this is the work, you know, let's talk about that part of you that gets really uncomfortable when you're slowing down or when something isn't fun for you, or it feels uncomfortable or just, you're just not liking it. And so everything becomes, you know, grist for the mill and where we get curious about everything that comes up and someone else felt rage about like, you know, when, as they, as their body started to slow down, it's really uncomfortable, particularly for people with trauma to get into a calm place. It's very, it feels very threatening and scary. So we're able to give, we give, you know, we get small doses of that. So I feel like we're just starting to open up that window of tolerance. And so I think that's the biggest thing, right? Having, having clients be open to these experiences and build that well, that window of tolerance because it is uncomfortable and we're programmed to not move towards things that are uncomfortable. And we're, we're, we're given ample ways to avoid discomfort in our culture, right? It would kind of have that like mindset, like, well, if something hurts, you take, you know, take aspirin or here's this, or there's this way to get rid of pain. And so that it, it's kind of, that's a natural, let me just talk about that as a natural part of this, this wanting to avoid and eating disorders are a source of avoidance, right? So that's kind of, it kind of ties into that. I think that's a big, the biggest challenge is people being open and, and going there and yeah. Yeah. And the culture is so supportive of mm -hmm. compuls compulsivity in lots of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. ways, and certainly compulsivity when it relates to exercise. And so uh, that piece of it must be must come up in in the conversations in the group around. Well, if I I have to change my whole lifestyle to not go to the gym, and I'm used yeah. to seeing those people at the gym, and I get lots of praise for being the one that's exercising with a boot or some other injury that sort of is the you get like hero status right like right. you're a warrior look at you out there like you know and there's so much celebration around excessive exercise and achievement through exercise and it's not to say that that isn't can't be valuable in someone's life but when it transitions into disorder then it is problematic because that person then thrives on it. And it's, and it's like, the, this is the only way they feel a sense of accomplishment. The only way they feel good about themselves is if they check that box or they 
for a lot of people, they describe this almost like building a tolerance where it's like, oh yeah, I was running this amount, but then all of a sudden that didn't feel like enough. I had to do more in order to feel okay, in order to feel good about myself. And it becomes that like a very central part of how they're defining their identity. And yeah, it is so normalized. I mean, especially with social media. I mean, I think about the number of posts I see, you know, people showing their workout for the day or clocking, you know, you know, posting about the time that, you know, their, their running time or how much time they spent or the rings on their fitness app. And, and I think even when we, when we think about health, even when we think about, even from a health at every size perspective, still the exercise is always like, oh, that's always a good thing, right? It's always a good thing. And there's not really that conversation about, well, when is it not, right? When is it not healthy? Other than maybe in our, our bubble, right? <laughs> With the eating disorder clinicians. <laughs> a lovely place, that bubble. Yes, isn't it? it is. I love it there. <laughs> love that bubble. <laughs> it also highlights the, the, complexity and the challenge of helping somebody to change their exercise patterns because we don't of course you know we don't tell people to just eat normally or to you know, just eat that we can't tell people to just exercise normally or exercise less or or exercise more if we're trying to help somebody to enjoy movement in their body so what other areas you mentioned them a little bit earlier but say a little bit more about the other uh, areas that that your book sort of certainly addresses and that clients and clinicians can be thinking about when it's comes to movement because it's not just about moving there's the breathing and everything else so say a bit more about that yeah so I think it's really important to help people really think differently about movement and redefine it and we even we even have dialogue about like what's the difference between the word exercise and the word movement because they both have very different connotations so that can actually serve to to, you know to bring up a whole host of of interesting concepts for people but I think one of the things I always help to highlight in our in our groups is that our body is moving all the time, right? When we're really, if we really can slow down, we actually can notice like our heart beating, our breath moving in and out of our body. There's a subtle energetic movement in our body at all times. So we, you know, this concept that you know we need to purposefully exercise to experience movement or to achieve this kind of state of. of calm, which I think a lot of people will do, whether it's because of stress or, or trauma symptoms or whatever, they'll, they'll exercise to exhaust themselves so they can finally rest. So it's really showing there are different ways and we do movement. We definitely, we bring movement in, but we also bring in art. We bring in, so when we're talking, we're, we, we talk a lot about polyvagal theory, which is really about how we, how are our nervous systems connected? How are we talk, you know, connecting both to our environment and, and, and to others? And so sometimes we'll do, we'll do some, a little bit of art or or drawing. And part of it is to help them understand when are they embodied? So we might do, um, for instance, I might have them draw a very simple object before we do an activity and then you guide them through something that gets them more in their bodies. And afterwards they, they draw again and they compare the two and in both the act of drawing, right. Brings them into a more connected state, but then they're noticing things about what it felt like to draw or the different, you know, kind of quality of the the picture, you know, there's more perfectionism in the beginning, whereas the, the, you know, for a lot of people, not always, but whereas the second experience was more just about the process and what it felt like to be writing and drawing on the page. So it's, it's interesting to, it's, and, and some of this is just kind of basically, it's kind of evolving with what they're bringing in. So one, one particular group we did, we, we did Qigong, and I'll be honest, I was a little nervous about 
this is like a group of 30 something, you know, I'm like, I don't know. I mean, are they going to be like, this is really woo woo. And like, we're not like, no, what are you, what are you talking about, Amy? And sure enough, it was actually really fascinating because I did a very traditional, I used like traditional language about, you know, collecting the heavens and pulling up the earth energy. And as we went through these, these movements and one of the participants said, Amy, I was at one point like, thinking what is she doing here and then but then she's like but honestly there was a point in that when we were moving our hands that I was so in that moment it was the first experience I've ever had of really being in a moment where I wasn't just anticipating the next one and what I was going to do or resting waiting for that next thing to do so I was like well see and so we could kind of laugh about it so I, I definitely am very around bringing these things in. I'm very human and down to earth and it's all experimental. And I think that makes it really open for people to, to kind of just process and talk about what their experience is like. So some people have talked about feeling when they've gone to yoga classes outside um, in the, the, the real world, they feel really trapped. Like I got to stay there the whole time, regardless of how I'm feeling or what's coming up for me. And here they can opt to sit out. They could walk out of the room if they needed to. There's a, another little room they can go to if need be. No one's used it yet, but they're, they're able to process exactly what came up. Like, and that's, I think the beauty of it is they have this space to really get a lot of support and hear other people share in their common experiences around movement outside of the group, like what comes up for them. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I think we, we certainly hear that a lot in the yoga that we do in our, in our treatment programs, but that can be a whole different way of moving for people that are, you know, doesn't feel quite right, doesn't feel often like it'll be enough, doesn't feel comfortable for all of those things you've said. And it's so beautiful to watch that process that transition, particularly when people are around other people that feel that same way, because right, if you're in the yoga class, wherever at the yoga studio, and you want to walk out, maybe other people want to walk out because they want to get to an appointment or they are, you know, struggling or whatever. But most people who are struggling with an eating disorder are not really thinking, I bet they feel exactly like me. <laughs> they think nobody feels like this. I feel alone. And so the beauty of doing this with other people that struggle with some of the same things, it's got to just be so powerful and really helps, I imagine, illustrate that, that this movement's different. It looks different. It feels different. So you must see that, I imagine, over and over. Yeah, I see. I mean, it, you can feel like the, the, the deeper level connection, especially after having done something together, that there's this, like, there, like I've, you can just like, oh my gosh, I am just I so get where you're at right now. I just feel so connected to you. And, and, and I think that that's helping them really build connection to other people and seeing how valuable that is in recovery, right? I mean, when we connect with other people, we, 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 we need to rely less on the eating disorder behaviors. So I think that's been a value, a huge value. And that's why I've been so far, I've only done this in person. I haven't tried to transition it to an online format. I don't know what that would be like. I feel like we would miss some of what we're getting in person, we're doing it with masks, but it's still being in space together has been so valuable. Yeah, it is, it is incredible how connecting that is. I know as we've moved into telehealth delivery for a number of our treatment programs and moved yoga and movement into telehealth, I think all of our staff have been a little bit like, is this going to work? And it's, a, it's amazing that's that same quality of connection and and uh, intentionality and observation of the body can can happen i i think a lot about when people listen to this podcast or listening to somebody else talking about things like this uh, i often imagine somebody maybe driving in their car or sitting at home listening thinking 
I wonder if that's me. I wonder if my relationship with exercise is an issue. What are some questions that they can ask themselves or explore with their other yeah, so that's that's a that's a good, very good question. And there's a whole list. I have there's a workbook that I've created that accompanies my book that I've made it available actually for free. And I have, there's a link I shared with you, and you're welcome to sh to share it along with this podcast, or people can reach out to me, and I'll make sure they get it. But there's a whole like exhaustive list of questions to ask. But some of the more the the real important ones are, you know, will I take a day off? What does it feel like to take a day off? you know, when my body's telling me it's time to stop, will I stop? Or do I get angry and push past that? You know, do I forego fun events, things I want to do, or things I feel like, you know, that I'm, I'm passionate about because I need to exercise? Does that supersede everything else in my life? You know, how do I feel when I take a day off? Like, is there increased anxiety? Is there a lot of guilt? You know, how do I feel after exercising, do I feel exhausted? Do I feel like I might pass out? I mean, that's you, that's a telltale sign for people say that in the shower after their run that I feel like I, I might, I might fall. It's really scary. So there, you know, what are you feeling? Ideally, after you've exercised, you feel energized, you feel good, you're ready to start your day, or you're you're kind of feeling really relaxed and ready to settle down. It it should not feel you should not feel ill or exhausted. And also just what drives it, right? What drives the exercise? Is it, is it, you know, that punishment oriented, guilt driven, you know, movement, or is it something that's coming out of, I really want to feel my body move. Like one of the, my favorite quotes, when this is from a, a college friend of mine who played soccer in college, she said, I love exercising because it's a conversation with my body. And it's like, I love that way of looking at movement as like a connection between you and your body. If it's feeling disconnected or a way to get out of your body, that's also a sign that, well, what's going on in my body that I'm, I'm needing to get away from and what might, you know, how could I maybe look at that a little bit more? So those are all some good questions to ask. That's such a beautiful concept, a conversation with my body. That's such a great thing to try. And yeah, I thought, you know, in college to have that awareness and I was like, that's just, that's wonderful. That is yeah. impressive. I also often think a lot about people who, who listen, again, listen to this podcast or elsewhere that are, are sort of hearing information about recovery as a possibility or maybe engaging in some work around their eating disorder behavior, their compulsive exercise. And they might be listening, thinking like, well, that is all well and good for you and the people that you work with, Amy, great, and, you know, good for you personally, but that's never going to be me. What would you say to that person? I would say every single person I've ever worked with has that experience because you, you don't know where you haven't gone yet, right? You can't possibly know what it's like further along the path than where you are right now. And I, I think, and also we all, we talk a lot, we talk very candidly in group about how recovery doesn't look like what you thought it might look like, right? It's not blissful. It's not this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and, and just kind of really um, letting people be in that place of, yeah, not being perfectly in recovery, not having it feel good. But I will, I think there's, I think that's this black and white thinking too, that shows up a lot, right? In the eating disorder work that like, you know, oh, well, I can't possibly get there. And, you know, we don't know, you know, we, but I think I just, what I like to, I like to present it as like, let's experiment, let's be curious. Maybe, you know, we don't know where, where, you know, where things are going to be tomorrow. You only know where they are right now. So, but I do think that someone, it is hard. There is definitely some preparation work for, so one of the things I do when I'm screening for the iMove groups is I try to determine where someone is in terms of their their stage of change? Like, are they in pre-contemplation, contemplation? Like, are they in action stage? Because in terms of matching people for groups, that makes a big difference. So 
you know, I've, I've been leading this one pilot group for now, this is going into the third session and it's been amazing to see the, the growth but somehow they were they were they were really well matched they were all in an action stage of change they all were done with this relationship with movement and wanted a different relationship i've i'm going to be starting in a couple weeks a more um kind of contemplative group where i think we're going to be doing a lot more dialogue around pros and cons and kind of like you know what you know what what this is serving what it's not serving so it'll be interesting to see that and to see if they're able to help each other progress i mean that's my goal is that they can help each other move along that that progression of the the, the change model yeah that's a beautiful concept it it, it also makes me think about you know, I, I imagine you have as well i've worked with clients who have a history of compulsive movement and are now not moving because engaging with any kind of movement feels really overwhelming and they don't like get back in the grips of that. Thoughts on how the iMove program might be helpful transition for somebody that might have that history or that presentation? Yeah, in, in all honesty, like there are some people in the program that have that, that experience where they had to stop exercising for, for during their recovery process and they're now really scared or, or tentative about bringing it back on because they're afraid they're going to lose control. And it's been really valuable, in fact, because I think that they're, they're able to really get into their body and recognize, oh, wow, I, I have this choice. I have this control inside, this ability to make choices based on what my body's me, which is so novel and new. And it's like, th th it's not dictated. Like my brain is not like, I'm not, I don't have to listen to those thoughts. Like, you know, I get it. I get to choose. So that's, that's the control, <laughs> you know, um, which is, is wonderful to see those transitions. And I do think that the, both sides of the spectrum, right. When you have exercise resistance, people that really are avoiding going into the body or the compulsive exercise, both can, you know, serve the same purpose, right. Not going into the body, not experiencing things, avoiding. So I do think that there's a lot of value because, you know, doing, you know, the meditation, the breathing, some of the sensory based work we do, all of that helps people come into the body in small doses and start to, to really explore what that feels like and start to build up tolerance and also start to enjoy it over time, you know, not only build up tolerance, but familiarity and then want more of it. And, you know, a lot of people are able to bring in, you know, simple breathing exercises that you know, from the group into their daily life that have been really helpful. And it's interesting to see what they bring back. Just one of, reminded me of one of the group members who had been a competitive swimmer and she had this really negative association to any breathing exercises. So when, when I presented that in group, it was, she's like, she's had an immediate response to it. But then as it turned out, one of the ones that I think is the most complex one, the Nadi showed now where you have to do this stuff with blocking a nostril, alternate nostril breathing, she loved it was like, you know, she was like, well, that isn't that ironic. So, and you know, it was, it, I think the, they had, the, these are things they're avoiding, right? But, and I hate to use this, and they're not being forced to do them in group. They're being invited to do them in group and in small doses and, and having new experiences with them in a very supportive um, structure. So I think it's, I feel like for, for myself having, you know, I'm, I now love meditating, but Took me a long time to get there because when I first started, it was it was really torturous. And I and I and I, I'm honest about that. That that's a really normal experience. The first couple of times you meditate, your brain's gonna go nuts, and you're gonna, you know, want to get out of it. And so, but I think that the idea that we all, you know, the reality is you need to do it multiple multiple times consistently, and to start to start to really be able to sink into that relaxed place a little more quickly. So we do some of that, like building up the tolerance for it in in group together. 
it's it's like in, in the in the brilliant words of your college friend, it's like practicing a different conversation with your body, right? There are lots of conversations you can have. Yes, let's change the dialogue. Let's flip the script. Yes, <laughs> Amy, this is so interesting and so helpful. Really curious about what your future plans are for iMove, and really most importantly, where can people connect with the program and with you? Absolutely. So. Right now, um, so I, you know, I will continue leading iMove groups and I'm really excited to get this into more people's hands. So I've started a clinician training. It's, it's actually for clinicians. It could yoga, yoga therapists or, or yoga teachers, coaches, uh, really anyone that works with eating disorders can partake in this. And it's, you know, it's a pretty intensive three-month training where people actually get certified to be able to run a, an iMove group and have all the resources they need. So you don't have to be a personal trainer or yoga teacher, you can actually take this program and there's resources, there's a video library you can use to deliver it and have, you know, kind of have the groups. And so that's really what I'm, that's actually that the pilot of that is starting this week. I've got the first cohort of eight people, which is so exciting. And then I don't know, I actually, I, I'm, I've been talking to people. I think that, so there's the, the I move book book for, for clinicians. And then there's the workbook. I, I think there will be a book that will be for clients, just like kind of like just a resource that will be a little bit different. And I think I was hoping to have more experience, like delivering the groups to have these client experiences to really draw from. And I, I'm getting such a rich education as I, as I watch the growth and I, I can't wait. I really want to write about it. So I'm hoping that to be able to do that in terms of reaching out to me. So right now I am offering both my book and the workbook for free. If you go to, there's two different websites that you can go to. One is imove-book.com and one is imovemethod.com. So the book is at imovebook.com and the workbook is at imovemethod.com. And you you can reach out to me at amy at imove.com. My handle on Instagram is at imovewithamy. I've got a Facebook group, which is imove. So would love to connect. I love having conversations with clinicians uh, just to hear how this is showing up in, in, in your work and also just to further further develop the training and the programming for, for people. And, and you know, we know that 40 to 82% of people with eating disorders struggle with compulsive exercise. So this is a big piece and often it's kind of like that piece we tack on the end of our sessions, right? Oh, so what about movement? What about exercise? And, and I'm hearing from clients, this is, this is the missing piece. This is what they're, they've been needing. So I've been really, I've been really glad to see the, the reception. Well, it is so exciting. We are excited to sort of follow along and see, see what happens next. Thank you so much for sharing your time and wisdom and insight with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate being here. Thank you. I've, it's been great to, to chat with you about this. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode of Piecemeal, please subscribe, rate, or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Learn more about us at emilyprogram.com and veritascollaborative.com or search Emily Program and Veritas Collaborative on social media. Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening.